One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You're right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, how is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplace, have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good evening. Let's begin in prayer. Speak, O Lord, for we are hungry to hear your word, and we know that without your word we would lack nourishment and strength. So, Father, we pray that you would speak to us tonight living words that would feed us and build us up. And we pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you've heard the story of Narcissus. Uh, According to Greek mythology, Narcissus was a young hunter who was also incredibly handsome. 
incredibly attractive. And he knew it. He was also incredibly arrogant, very vain. And many young ladies would, would come to him and throw themselves at this handsome young man. And time and again, he would reject their advances because he felt he was too good for them. And because of his pride and his disdain, so the story goes, uh, the gods decided to judge Narcissus. Uh, they decided to cause him to fall in love with himself. And so one day he was out hunting and he rode past a, a pool in the forest and he glanced down and he saw in this pool this most amazing, beautiful vision. He didn't realize it was his own reflection that he saw. And so captivated was he by this stunning reflection that he could not take his eyes off what he saw. Hour after hour, day after day, completely captivated by this beauty. Until sadly, eventually, he grew weaker and weaker and died because he was so in love with his reflection. Narcissus is a story of self-love of self-preoccupation, self-centeredness. To many of us today, this mythical story of Narcissus seems very far removed from reality. Okay, maybe just a few people on the edge of society might display some of those symptoms. There is a medical condition uh, that derives its name from this story. But the label narcissism is a label that we would not use of people today, quite apart from the fact that it's very hard to say. Uh, it's certainly not a label that we use of ourselves. But as we turn to Mark's gospel, we, we find out that narcissism is not a myth. In fact, it is widespread and it was prevalent in Jesus' day in Jerusalem. We're in this section of Mark's gospel when Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem on the eve of his death and what he finds in this city causes him great distress. Chapters 11 and 12 are full of hostile debates and questioning between Jesus and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. All kinds of issues about power and authority and identity are coming up. And again and again we see that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees are a million miles away from Jesus. And tonight is no different. The issue we're thinking about tonight is this. What attitude does God want from his people? What attitude does God want from his people? What attitude does he want from us in terms of our view of him, our attitude towards our neighbor, and of course, our attitude towards ourselves. As we go through tonight's passage, we see just how wrong the Jewish leaders were in terms of their attitudes. And we see why, yet again, judgment was coming on Jerusalem and these leaders. But as we go tonight, we also need to examine our own hearts. Because what God was looking for 2,000 years ago is the same today. He's looking for the same attitudes, the same priorities in us. So what attitude is God looking for from his people? Well, we see two lessons from uh, these stories 
from Mark 12. The first lesson is this. Remember the supremacy of love. Remember the supremacy of love. We've had lots of questions in these two chapters, and the next question comes there in in verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? We've had lots of hostile questions in this section, lots of questions designed to trick Jesus. But I think this question is genuine. I think this teacher uh, has a real question and he wants a real answer from Jesus. Uh, The word there for good in verse 28 means more than just a correct answer. It means a satisfying, wholesome, appropriate, compelling answer. And it seems this teacher has seen something of, of, of how persuasive Jesus is and he feels compelled to ask a real question about a real burning issue of the day, which is about the greatest commandments. Now you see, in Jerusalem at this time, there were over 600 different commandments that the Pharisees had, had brought into place, covering all kinds of areas of life. And so it, it was a very valid question to ask, which one of these commandments is the greatest? Which one should I focus on above all others? A genuine question put to Jesus. And the answer Jesus gives is both simple and profound. Verse 29. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Remember the supremacy of love. There are, in fact, two commandments here, not one, two for the price of one. Uh, Both were well known. The first one comes from Deuteronomy 6. Uh, it's, it's, It's part of the Jewish prayer called the Shema, which any devout Jew would say several times a day. It was a well known summary of the law. And the second one comes from Leviticus chapter 18. Again, a well-known summary of the law. So there's no surprises here from Jesus. People would have expected this answer from him, to love God and to to love neighbor. But there is a sting in the tail for us as we read on. Because the teacher of the law uh, agrees with Jesus. He accepts the answer and says, well spoken. But then he goes on. Look what he says in verse 33. These two commandments at the end are more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. There are hundreds of rules about sacrifices and offerings, and the Pharisees were the real experts in how all these things worked. They took great pride in getting it right. And so the real sting in the tale here is that the most important thing is not not these commandments about sacrifices, although they were important. The most important thing is to love God. And for the Pharisee, this was a real blow because it, it attacked their exclusive nature, their, their kind of expertise. And it, it exposed their failure. Yes, experts in the law, but not experts at loving God. And that is why I think in verse 34 we're told, no one dared ask him any more questions. 
because the Pharisees were flawed. They had been exposed. What really mattered was love for God, not expertise in sacrifices. Remember the supremacy of love. This is not a new message in the Bible. Again and again throughout the prophets, God's people are told what matters most is your attitudes, not your actions. So um, back in Hosea 6, uh, verse 6, we're told, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God, rather than burnt offerings. This is not a new message, but it seems God's people forgot the message again and again. They kept on focusing on the externals, on the sacrifices, and forgot the attitudes, the love for God and for neighbor. Jesus arrives in Jerusalem and looks around him and sees countless people going through the motions, doing all the right things, ticking the boxes, but miles from God because they did not love God and did not love their neighbor. But what about us? What should we make of, of this section? Well, on one hand, this message is immensely liberating, the supremacy of love, because it means that even the smallest gesture, the smallest action on our part, if it's done out of love for God and neighbor, makes God extremely happy. God takes great delight in anything we do if we do it out of love. That's, that's wonderful, isn't it? It's an immensely liberating thought that we don't have to write any Christian books or plant a church or preach to thousands to please God. All we have to do is to love him. So the next time we offer to do the washing up, even though it's not our turn, but simply because we do it out of love for our spouse or for our housemates, God loves that. It thrills him. Or the next time we take five minutes out of a busy day just to stop and to pray to God, not because we have a shopping list full of requests, but simply because we love God and we want to spend five minutes talking to him. God loves that. He's thrilled with that. The supremacy of love is an immensely liberating message. If we can get our heads around what God wants from us, he wants us to love him and to love our neighbor. But of course, it's also an immensely challenging message because who here, including myself, can say that we have loved God and neighbor as we should? I remember speaking to a lady quite recently who was adamant that the human race was getting better and better. Just given time and conditions, we would become perfect. Uh, She denied the idea of sin. And I guess if you define sin in terms of rape and murder and robbery, it's quite easy to think that quite a few of us are not sinners, that quite large chunks of society are getting better. But do you see how different that definition of sin is from what we're being told about sin here in Mark 12? God's standard is one of love and attitude, not just actions. What God is looking for is not just avoidance of certain wrong things, but an active obedience in other areas, an active love. Who of us can say we have loved God and neighbor with this wholehearted, whole being approach? It is also an immensely challenging message. 
There is, of course, one person who has loved God and neighbor perfectly. In fact, this person loved God so much and loved his neighbor so much that he even gave his life as a sacrifice to bring sinners close to God. He held nothing back. And that is why this teacher is told in verse 34 that, he, that you are not far from the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is not about ritual sacrifices but it is about the one perfect sacrifice that makes the end of all sacrifices. It's about love. And if we can grasp that, then we are indeed in line with the kingdom of God. What attitude is God looking for from his people? Well, the first lesson tonight is remember the supremacy of love. And our second point is this. Remember the seriousness of self-centeredness, the seriousness of self-centeredness. We've seen what God is looking for from his people and now we see just how far from that standard the, the Jewish leaders were. They were not loving God or neighbor, they were loving themselves. Look down at verse 38. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplace and have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at the banquets. It seems that these teachers of the law had cultivated an environment where people looked up to them, where they received honor from the other Jews. And they knew exactly what they were doing. They were trying to look good in front of other people. Very simply, they were loving themselves. They were self-centered, self-seeking. The exact opposite of what Jesus calls us all to be like. And it's there again in verse 40. Far from loving their neighbor, we're told, verse 40, they devour widows' houses. Widows were the classic example of the kind of people God wanted to be protected and cared for in the Old Testament. And here, the leaders are devouring these very people in stark contrast to the command to love our neighbor. And these teachers thought that they would get away with it. They thought they could impress the people and so get honor and credit for themselves. But of course, God sees through the externals and sees the heart. And that is why we're told in verse 40, judgment is coming on these leaders. Remember the seriousness of self-centeredness. And I guess the challenge for us is clear. It is possible to tick all the right boxes as a Christian, to look sorted, to do all the right things, to go to all the right meetings, say all the right things, and yet to have hearts that are far from God because we're really about seeking our own glory, seeking our own furtherment not loving God and loving neighbor. It is possible to be experts in our field, to have great skill and insights and ability, but if we are not loving God and neighbor, if we are actually loving ourselves instead, then that is the very thing that Jesus was so upset about when he saw the Jewish leaders. And in their, in their self-centeredness, I think the teachers of the law actually misunderstood Jesus completely. That is, this, that's what this little bit is telling us about from verse 35 to 
to verse 37. It's quite a perplexing little um, section, and it's hard to see what it means and how it fits into the overall section, but for what it's worth, this is how I, th- I, I think it works. I think the leaders are so preoccupied with themselves and their glory that they've misunderstood the Messiah and how great he is. And here's how the passage works, I think. So in verse 35, we read, he asked, how is it that the teachers of the law say that, that the Christ is the son of David? Now that's, that's, all, that's perfectly fine. It, it is true to say that the Christ would be the son of David. That is an Old Testament promise that God would raise up a king who is a son of David who would rule on his throne. So it's fine, verse 35, to make that statement. But the problem is, the Jews were saying that that the Messiah was only the son of David, as in lesser than David. But verse 36, Jesus goes on to say, David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. What does that mean? Well, it means this. The Lord, that is God the Father, said to my Lord, that is uh, David's Lord, the Messiah, the one to come, sit at my right hand. So the point is this. The great king David was able to say of the Messiah, you are my Lord, which of course is a term of honor. So yes, the Messiah would be David's offspring, his son, but he wasn't gonna be less than his son, he was gonna be greater. He was even more powerful than the great King David. He was great King David's Lord. That's why in verse 37, Jesus makes the points. David calls him Lord. He's not just his son, he is more than his son. So it seems that the teachers of the law had a, had a small view of Jesus, of the Messiah. Someone who is the son of David, but somehow less than David. But Jesus is saying, no, no, the Messiah, yes, the son of David, but even greater than David. He is David's Lord. And the, the danger of self-centeredness that we're seeing here is that the Jews were so focused on themselves that they missed how great Jesus was. They missed how great the Messiah was. He is, in fact, the Lord of even the great King David. And if we allow ourselves to be self-centered, we too will miss how great Jesus is. We will miss his true power, his true glory. We need to remember the seriousness of self-centeredness. Well, how should we respond as we close? Well, very simply, we should copy the widow. Verse 44. Jesus says, they gave all out of their wealth, but she, this widow, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. She didn't give much, two pennies, but for her it was everything. And the point here is, God is not looking for amounts or for totals, but for attitudes. She gave all she had. Willingly. She is the, the example of the kind of person God is looking for, who, who loves God so much that they give all of their lives to God. An attitude of love and a sacrifice. The opposite of the rich young ruler back in Mark 10, he would not give up his wealth to follow Jesus, 
because he loved money more than Jesus. But here the widow loves God above all things and gives freely. She is the example of the kind of person we should be. Other person-centered, focused on God, focused on neighbor, not on ourselves and our glory. And of course, the ultimate example of someone who gave all that he had for others is Jesus, is it not? He gave everything he had, including his life on the cross, the ultimate act of love, so that we, when we fail and make mistakes, can be forgiven and be confident of God's love. He is our example, our our template of what it means to live an other person-centered life. What is God looking for from his people? Remember the supremacy of love. Remember the seriousness of self-centeredness. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you that you speak to us because you love us. And we thank you for the reminders tonight of what you look for from your people. Oh, Father, we we long that we become increasingly people who love, not ourselves, but who love you and love our neighbor with a sincere, deep, passionate love that is from all of us, not just a token gesture. And we pray for your help, Father, that you would make us increasingly people who love as you would have us love. In Jesus' name, amen.